I hope you're all doing well during this trying time around the world. For diehard sports fans and the casual fan alike, sports can be a nice distraction from everyday life. For fans of Major League Baseball, the current situation has meant a longer hot stove season than we would like, but hopefully the boys of summer will be playing soon again. All Inclusive, a podcast on inclusion, innovation, and social justice with Jay Ruderman. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All Inclusive, and today we have the Executive Director of the Boston Red Sox Foundation, Becca Sawasser, as our guest. Becca, thank you for joining us and hope you and your family are doing well at this time. I just want you to tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up and how you ended up where you are right now. Sure. So I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I grew up in a very busy, chaotic, diverse family. I'm one of five children um, in a multi-ethnic racial family. My mom's family is from Barbados. My dad's family is from Ireland. And so we grew up with a lot of culture, a lot of different culture, a lot of different food, a lot of different music and a lot of different people in our house all the time, which I look back and think of as a blessing, just given the exposure I had to difference and diversity. And I think that helped shape a little bit about my personal kind of goals and personal missions, which came to kind of grow out of that experience of being part of an upbringing that was rooted in diversity. Um, and so my mom and dad worked in Boston Public School System for several decades each and recognized the need for good education. And so they worked oftentimes two and three jobs apiece to ensure that all five of us had access to the best education possible. And so for me, my pathway was through a private school in Cambridge called Buckingham, Brown and Nichols. And I was a lifer there from kindergarten through 12th grade. And I look back at that time there as one where I was exposed to, again, a lot of diversity, having grown up in a family with a lot of racial and ethnic diversity. And again, we came from a background of kind of low socioeconomic status to being thrust into an environment that um, where I was now uh, the ex- experiencing the kind of pathway of a minority in that situation, going to a school with such affluence. It was hard, but it was a very good experience for me because it, it allowed me to understand how to operate and succeed in various situations and circumstances. And by that, I mean, I feel like you could drop me in any group of people whether that be differences of racial and ethnic differences, of socioeconomic differences, social differences, anything. And I feel like I could fit in. I learned very well how to um, adjust and assimilate um, to, uh, to different situations and people uh, with my experience at BBNN. The other huge asset I felt like having gone to BBNN gave me was exposure to various sports. And so for me, the love of athletics started very young. As I mentioned, I, I started at BBNN in kindergarten. That was the same year that I began Cambridge Youth Soccer. And it was an immediate love. Soccer for me is my kind of one true passion, of course, outside of my kids and my husband. But um, it was something that I immediately gravitated towards. And um, I often talk about soccer for me as a positive feedback loop. The more I put in, the better I got, and the more rewards and accolades I received. And it just was this positivity that I, that I really thrived on. And so I constantly was giving as much as I could 
to soccer and to sports. And through that, um, received a lot of recognition, particularly in high school, um, becoming an, an All-American in both soccer and lacrosse, uh, both my junior and senior year. Um, and then kind of that opened the doors to higher education in a way that I don't think it would, I would have ex uh, the opportunity otherwise. Meaning if I didn't play sports, I wouldn't have gotten into as many colleges and universities as I did. I ended up going on to play soccer at Brown University and loved that school. Um, it was very similar, I felt, to BBNN in being a very liberal, kind of laid back, hands off type of school. Um, it also was very close to home and I, I grew up uh, a homebody and uh, oftentimes homesick. And so it was wonderful for me to have the proximity to my family um, that I needed. And so, you know, a couple years of Brown was, was an amazing experience for me. Um, I will say though, after Brown, I had no idea that I wanted to continue to play soccer because there wasn't a professional sports team at the time. If you recall, the first professional women's league started in 2003 with the WUSA the Women's United Soccer Association. And I, um, or began in 2001, I'm sorry, 2001, because I got called down to the draft to try out for it and I didn't make it. And I always reference that moment in my life in conversations because it was one of the toughest moments of my life. It was one of the first times that I experienced great failure. I was someone that oftentimes was the best got the award, got the recognition. And so to go down to a combine, thinking I was gonna be the best, thinking I was gonna get drafted on all these teams and then walking away being told, sorry, you weren't good enough, uh, better luck next time um, was devastating for me. And so I, it was this real kind of sliding doors moment in my life where I had to choose if I was gonna to continue to pursue soccer and a goal that at that moment I failed at, or if I was gonna go in, into like the real world and get a real job and I, I kind of split the difference there and, and continued to play soccer at the semi-pro level while working. I started coaching um, at that time. I coached for Boston University and Boston College women's soccer. I'm glad I stuck with soccer because two years in, I got called up to play for the Boston Breakers in 2003, which was the professional women's team here in Boston, and had a really great season with them in 2003. Um, unfortunately, the WSA folded that year. And if, if you follow them in soccer, you'll know that there's been several iterations of the Women's Pro League. My only exposure and experience with professional soccer was with that team in that year. After that league folded, I was like 23, I think at the time. I felt so old. What did I know? And um, I decided to get a real job. And so that was my first experience working for a nonprofit. And I worked for a, non a small nonprofit called America Scores. And that was a nonprofit that for me was the first time leveraged both academics and athletics as the recipe for success. Little did I know that that recipe would follow through with almost every single job I, I had thereafter. And after America Scores, I went on to run Charleston Lacrosse and Learning Center, uh, similar kind of formula. I went on then after to run the community relations department for the Boston Celtics um, and running their Shamrock Foundation, their, their philanthropic arm. I then went on to run Scholar Athletes as Executive Director, again, leveraging academics and athletics as the recipe for success. And now I am at the Boston Red Sox running the Red Sox Foundation. Um, and again, they, we do run programs that try to combine where we can both academics and athletics as a recipe for success for young people. So I do, if, if you 
you know, listen to that story, you'll, you'll recognize the thread of sport throughout my entire life. And I feel so privileged and lucky to be at the helm of such a great sports entity to influence change and create opportunity for young people through sport, given my experience and success through sport in my own life. So let me ask you, going back to your time in school, did you experience discrimination? And when you did, if you did, how did you deal with it? That's a really good question. And the answer is yes. Um, And I would find it hard to believe that anybody that is not, quote, different hasn't experienced that unfortunate reality. And so for me, as I mentioned, I identify myself as an African-American female. There were few and far between African-Americans, period, at the school, and even fewer African-American females at the school. And so for me, coming into that environment and being one of the only women of color and having to kind of represent an entire demographic is challenging when you're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And that's a lot to ask of someone so young. And so for me, discrimination looked like someone coming up and touching my hair and saying, why does your hair look different? Why doesn't your hair move like mine? Are you always that color? Or someone coming up and saying, wow, nice tan. And me saying, I don't have a tan. That's my natural skin color. Of course, I heard the N-word throughout my experience at BBNN. Never spoken at me directly, but in the periphery and in conversation that I was present at. And so it's really hard. I mean, I don't, I, I look back and wish I had the coping mechanisms that I know now to be able to combat and address some of the discrimination I faced. But at the time, you know, I, I just internalized, I feel like, a lot of that, unfortunately, and I kind of moved forward through it without any real base to kind of help me digest it and understand it. And, and so I, I do know that there were groups that I was part of that definitely helped, like the Multicultural Students Alliance, the MSA was something I was part of. And that was definitely a place where you could vent and talk about it. But you know, teenagers are going through a lot and it's really hard to process racism and discrimination and microaggressions that happen all the time all over the place. And um, a lot that's a long-winded answer to your question, which is the short answer is yes. When you face this discrimination as a young African-American woman, it must have been extremely difficult to deal with. Did you ever bring it to the authorities' attention? I mean, what proactive uh, actions did you feel comfortable taking at that time? And I would also add, did that experience lead you to think differently about uh, members of different minority groups that may not that you may not have been part of, but you know may have seen similarities in terms of how they were also being treated? Yeah, and I'll answer the latter first. My my short answer there is absolutely. I think, and again, not patting myself on the back, but if I think if you asked anybody like who I was in high school, I was very intentionally inclusive. And so I made it a point to talk to everyone, whether that was a brief hello, how are you doing, um, to actually like engaging in a game or a conversation or, or something with those, those people, with, with meeting those people, everyone. But the, you know, the clicks and the categories that you can identify across, you know, high schools, I really surfed across all of them. Um, And I did that intentionally because I know how it, I knew how it felt to be excluded. And I knew how it felt to be one of or the only. And I really tried to break down those walls of isolation and feeling kind of solitude and 
kind of exclusion, if you will. And, and again, I don't know how much of a difference it made. Although I do have a story to tell. One, a couple of years ago, I was at the aquarium with my kids and one of the ticket takers at the front desk said, Becca, Becca Splane, that's my maiden name. I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, it's Eric. And I was like, oh my God, how are you? And he was like, I'm good. I just want you to know how much it meant to me that you were so nice to me in high school. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, no, of course. Thank you. And that has stuck with me as, you know, really meaningful. And because you, you just, you never know what people are going through. All you can, all you know is your own lived experience. Um, and, and I really just remember trying to be intentionally inclusive as often as I can across these categories of, of difference, um, whether that be, you know, someone is classified as being like the smart kids, right? And they weren't really the popular kids. And, you know, I married one of the smart kids. I married one of the kids I graduated with in high school. And people are always, well, you married Zach Sawasser? Wow, I never knew you guys were even friends. And so, yes, the, short, the long answer is yes, I tried to be as inclusionary as possible, given my own experience of exclusion oftentimes. And I think the other question was, um, how comfortable did you feel like raising the issue to authorities at the time? You know, I have to say, I think that's something I wish I did better. I didn't really raise um, many of those issues to the authorities. I think partly because it felt so um, normal, you know, and I just, I don't know, and the authorities were part of the majority. And so I, it was a difficult situation to try to go to someone that looked and talked and shared many of the same similar lived experiences as the people committing the offenses to say, hey, this person was doing so-and-so. Um, I think the place that I went and spoke about those experiences were the MSA, Multicultural Students Alliance, and my parents, right, and, and my brothers and sisters. Um, and I wouldn't even say really my friends, because most of my friends weren't ethnic minorities and did not experience those experiences the same way I did. And so in that way, it was a very isolating experience um, in many ways, unfortunately. So let me ask you, you're an athlete and you've always been an athlete and, and an accomplished athlete. We're recording this during the height or the buildup to the height of COVID-19 in the United States. On a personal level, what do you do to keep yourself active when, we're, when most of us are isolated in our homes? And what type of advice would you give to people not only to keep themselves physically active, but how to deal with issues of mental health in isolation. Absolutely. And I'm going to go out on a limb and expose myself here and say that I feel like I have had a heightened level of anxiety over this time at my house. I've never spent so much time indoors. I've never spent so much time sitting. I've never spent so much time online. Um, and as you know, most of the news out there is a little bit anxiety inducing. And so I've struggled recently with some levels, increased levels of anxiety to the point where I've, I've reached out to my PCP to have some conversations about that and, and certainly looking into some, some conversations with a therapist to make sure that I get the help and assistance I need to make sure that that doesn't go unchecked. And so I would just encourage anybody that's experiencing anything like that to reach out to the resources that are available to them to make sure they're, they're taking advantage of them to ensure that they get the help that they need to address any issues that they see happening in these unprecedented times. And I'll commend the Boston Red Sox um, because we have daily communication coming out from our HR department telling us about opportunities to reach out uh, around mental health 
to make sure that we are speaking to the right types of people at the right times around any issues that we're having. And for me, this has played out with lack of sleep. I'm, I'm experiencing insomnia. I just have not been able to sleep the way that I, that I have been. And I think for me, it's because I'm now carrying the weight of having three children under seven at my house, my kids at the house. I've got to keep them alive. I've got to keep them fed and most importantly, educated. At the same time, my husband has to maintain his full-time job and I have to maintain my full-time job. And doing all of that under the pressure and umbrella of a growing pandemic is really, really frightening. Um, and so I've suffered recently with uh, some insomnia and anxiety issues. And again, I say that to lessen the stigma around talking about this stuff. I feel like too many people feel they're going to be judged for saying that. And I want people to know there's no, there should not be a stigma around talking about the issues that you have because I wager the bet that more people than you recognize are suffering with these issues. Um, and so I would just, you know, encourage people to get outside, obviously maintain social distancing, but even if it's taking a walk, I went for a walk around my block and I live in the city. I live in Dorchester in Boston and there was still a lot to see. Uh, I still had to maintain distance around people on the sidewalk, but it did me so much mental good to just go outside and reconnect in my community and just get some fresh air and move my legs and just get outside of my physical house was very, very helpful. Unfortunately, I have an injury right now which prevents me from running and doing any kind of real exertion in terms of exercise, but I do have an erg in my basement, a rowing machine, and I am able to do that. And so that has been my personal exercise recently. And, and an erg is great because as much as you throw at it, it can take, and so you can, you can go hard for 10 minutes and get a really great workout. Um, and that's about the time limit I have right now, given the other priorities in my life with my kids and my job. That's all I have to give to working out every day or every other day. But for other people, I encourage you to try to disconnect from the, the regular priorities that you're facing and just give yourself 10, 15 minutes to just not think about any of that and to really just be in the moment of physical activity, whether that's walking, whether that's jogging, whether that's even meditating, getting outside and just sitting still. I think the disconnection is what's really, really important. Well, first of all, I think that it's so important. You know, we've um, set up weekly times for our staff to do yoga together and constantly talking about mental health and where we are. And some people are dealing with it better than others, but there's no judgment. And, and we're really encouraging people to, to get the help and to take care of themselves because this is a unprecedented situation where we're stuck at home and we don't know how long we're going to be stuck at home. On top of that, we're going to be faced with really, really sad you know, situations where if what happens, uh, happens that the government's talking about, we're all going to know people who are ill and passing away from this. And it's, it's terrible. These are the times that we're living through. You know, I really want to commend you on a really impressive uh, sports career. And um, sports is not easy, no matter whether you do it junior varsity, varsity, you know, college, professional. But one thing I've always wondered about professional athletes is at some day, sometime it comes to an end. I mean, there's a line in the movie Moneyball, which I'm sure you've seen, you know, they're talking about baseball players and they're saying at one point, 
we're all told that we can't play the boys game. And at some point it comes in, in little league or high school or college or, you know, in the, in the minor leagues. But when your professional career ended, how did you deal with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the short answer is not easily. It was a very emotional time for me. So I played professionally uh, for the Breakers, like I said, in 2003. But then I went on after that league folded. I couldn't stop playing soccer. I loved it so much. When there was no pro league, I went back to playing semi-pro. And so I played semi-pro from 2004. And then I officially retired in 2011. It all just kind of actually made the decision for me. 2011 was the year I got married. So I had like stepped into having to plan a wedding and I met the man of my dreams and I was moving on and like, and we knew we wanted to have a family. So I knew I couldn't probably play forever. I also was playing with a team that we, in 2011, we won a national championship at the semi-pro level. So I was like, let me go out on top. This is the perfect time. I'm the oldest player on this team. I'm captaining this team. The best way I feel, I felt like I could have possibly ended my career short of playing professionally. Because at that time I was still working a full-time job. So I needed to have a career, a soccer career that was kind of symbiotic or work in concert with my professional career at my job, my, my career with scholar athletes being the executive director there. So it would just, we ended up winning the national championship. It, it felt right. My body was starting to not do the things that my mind wanted it to physically. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to keep pace with, you know, the 22 year olds that I was playing with. And so it just all felt right. Now that said, I cried for days, I think after my last game, after we won, and it was a joyous cry, but it was also a, a real sadness that I was never going to be able to play. I was choosing to not play at the level that I once did. There, there was definitely a process that I needed to get through to feel like I had had the right closure I needed to move on from my career. And I would think that that is somewhat normal for a lot of players is you've got to come to emotional grips with the end of your career. You know, I feel very badly for those that are ended by an injury uh, because it's not on your terms, right? And so for me, I felt lucky that I was able to choose the ending of my career and go out on top, going going out on a game where I played, you know, the full 90. We won um, in the finals. We we're national champions. I captained the team. I literally got every, I got, I think I was even MVP of the game. And so I got everything I could have out of that last moment of my professional career. I continue to play and I still continue to play, just not at that level. Um, and I think I will continue to play. Honestly, I play in a tournament every year called the Vets Cup. And the classifications for age uh, groupings are over 30s, over 40s, over 50s, 60s, and 70s, if you can believe it. And there are 70-year-olds that come out and play. And I'm like, that's totally going to be me, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm 41 right now, and I still play with the 30s. And so that's kind of what makes me feel great is I can still play with 30-year-olds, you know, even though I'm freaking 42 and 20. You're listening to All Inclusive with Jay Ruderman. You can learn more, view the show notes and transcripts at rudermanfoundation.org slash allinclusive. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you are listening. Well, congratulations on again on your career. And 
your transition to working for the highest level of Boston professional sports teams, first working with the Celtics and now the Red Sox, must be gratifying to have an integral part in, in some of the best teams around the world, you know, in, in professional sports. So maybe you can talk a little bit about getting involved with the Celtics and what you did there and then how that led to coming on to the Red Sox. So as I mentioned, I was the community relations director and the Shamrock Foundation director for the Celtics. I'll say that when I started, um, it was the biggest adjustment for me was actually seeing the discrepancy between how male professional athletes worked and lived and how I worked and lived. And just a sidebar, I made less than like $15,000 a year as a professional soccer player. Uh, I was living with my sister. I didn't even have my own car, literally lived paycheck to paycheck. And then juxtapose that with coming onto the Celtics and seeing male professional athletes with, I can't even get into the numbers in terms of their contracts and the cars they drove, the houses they had, the jewelry they had, the salaries they were making. It was just night and day. And so that was a little bit, I have to be honest, that was a little bit infuriating to me. Um, even the best played woman soccer player couldn't even hold a candle to the lowest paid Celtics player. And so that was, that was hard for me. It was a learning experience. I really loved my time at the Boston Celtics because it afforded me the ability to understand all that goes into making a pro team work, which I never really got having played for the breakers. Of course, my time was spent on the field, not in the office of the breakers. And now I was at a desk behind the office and I was shocked at how many moving parts it took to actually execute a game for the Boston Celtics, let alone the season and then the postseason. It was mind boggling how much work went into it. And so, you know, for me running the foundation in the community relations department, was just a dream because I essentially got to leverage the players, all the assets, all the inventory to bring opportunity to the community. And so to be able to leverage a brand like the Boston Celtics for good was fun. I mean, I think that's the best word I can give you. It was, it was amazing. Um, and to kind of, kind of connect the dots between the benefits and opportunity was great. And by benefits, I mean, like what player liked what type of work. He liked to go to a hospital. He liked to go to schools. He liked to work with young people. He liked to work with veterans. And then looking in the community and saying, okay, let's match you here, let's match you here, let's match you here. And then creating the programs in between to maximize the outcomes was, was really amazing. But it was a lot, you know, I had to work every single home game. That was the kind of mantra back then when I worked at the Celtics. I think they've uh, since changed that, but it was a lot. It, it was a lot of time spent at the TD Garden and a lot of time at the office. And as I mentioned, I was, you know, looking to start a family and I just, I knew it wasn't something that I could sustain forever. And so I was approached by John Fish, who is the CEO of Suffolk uh, Construction to run his nonprofit that uh, was called Scholar Athletes. And that was an, a really exciting opportunity for me because it allowed me to get a little bit deeper into the direct service work. At the Celtics, I was a little bit removed from the direct service and more playing kind of a connector of resources. At Scholar Athletes, I was really getting my hands dirty with the work and really um, in the schools, in every single Boston Public High Schools, in, in Springfield Public High Schools, in Everett High School. Uh, working with the administrators, working with the students to maximize their outcomes. And so I was there for seven years running that program and really starting it and growing it, which is a, a new opportunity for me as well to 
understand how to start and then roll out and sustain a nonprofit was something new for me. And so while I was there, we ran galas every year, as many nonprofits do, to bring in a, a, a unrestricted revenue. One of my gala co-chairs one of the years was none other than Sam Kennedy. Uh, and Sam Kennedy is the CEO of the Boston Red Sox. And so Sam was my co-chair for one of the galas at Scholar Athletes. And given my role as executive director, I worked very closely with Sam, making sure that he had everything he needed to be a successful gala co-chair for Scholar Athletes. Little did I know that he was taking notes. Uh, and so Sam called me eight months later, or almost even a year after our time together, is, and just said, you know, Becca, I recall working with you through this process at your gala. And I really enjoyed working with you and your personality was great and work ethic and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, would you be interested in having a conversation about coming over to the Red Sox to run our foundation? And for me, it was just, you know, seven years at Scholar Athletes was amazing, but it was also a lot, a lot of work to get that organization up and running. And, um, and, and so I felt like emotionally I was ready for a change. And it was the Boston Red Sox. I mean, you can't turn them down. And so I, uh, I went out to lunch with Sam and Tom Warner, who was the chairman for the board of directors for the Red Sox Foundation. And they um, had a very compelling conversation with me about what the opportunity would entail at the, Red, the Boston Red Sox. And uh, I couldn't say no. You know, I have four teenagers and obviously sports fans um, and Bostonians and athletes are really held up as role models. I have to say in terms of disability and mental health, there's been some real great examples. I mean, the one that I'm thinking of right now is Kevin Love in the NBA and coming out and really talking about anxiety and 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 how he deals with it. And And I think if you're a younger person and you hear that, hey, this is not an embarrassment. This is something to be talked about. This is real. This is like if you, you know, pull a hamstring, you know, the, the, this is an issue that, you know, we have to deal with and bringing it out of the closet, I think is really important. You know, the Red Sox are a hugely respectable organization, not just in the New England area, but across the MLB and 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 sports in general. You know, we we as a as a foundation have focused um, on the civil rights and the inclusion of people with disabilities in society, which is going to be severely severely tested during COVID nineteen and when the medical community has to make some very serious decisions about who gets treatment and who doesn't. And our position has always been is a life is a life and everyone should be respected. But, you know, we're working with the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Red Sox uh, Foundation on the issue of, of mental health. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that partnership and, and what it's going to entail and, and, and what it means to the organization. Let me preface what I'm about to say with a huge thank you to the Ruderman Foundation for just bringing this to the forefront uh, for us, for our community, for the Red Sox, for everyone. Mental health, it should be just synonymous with like a muscle that you work out, you stretch, you maintain. You know, it, it, is, it is part and parcel with living a healthy life. And I feel like we need to recognize that and be comfortable talking about that as often as we can. And to your point, leveraging the celebrity of professional athletes to do that is an incredibly impactful way to break down the barriers that unfortunately exist around this conversation of mental health. And so in partnership with the Ruderman Foundation, what we're really excited about doing is getting more of our players to speak broadly, to speak openly about the conversation around mental health and about the importance of mental health. And we've already done that. 
Um, and we just hope that we can start to build somewhat of a captain, if you will, for no better term for this to say, can you choose to have this as your kind of purpose and champion this cause in a way that you, more than me, more than Sam Kennedy, more than really anybody else, could break down so many barriers that we need to um, as a country. And so one thing that we're very excited to do also, in addition to kind of leveraging players and player celebrity around this, is to dedicate not only one game, but prior to, I believe, almost every game, we're going to be airing the PSA in park that talks about mental health and the importance of addressing these issues as a community and as individuals. Um, but getting back to the game day, we're really, really, really excited about allocating almost every in-game resource during an entire day and the entire broadcast to building awareness around mental health. And so one thing I know that we're doing at the Red Sox Foundation is we are ensuring that all of the award, the, grant, the grants that we give out through our impact are going to be given to nonprofits that are doing groundbreaking and meaningful work in their communities around mental health and achieving mental health outcomes in their communities. And so we're running, we're going to be running um, kind of an online viral campaign to have Red Sox Nation select the top organizations that are doing that work. Um, and so it's a really, really unique program of ours whereby we leverage our fan base to identify the nonprofits that are doing great work. And so the nonprofits in each state surrounding Massachusetts that receive the most nominations will be the ones that win. And those organizations will come in to the broadcast and to the game that day and be recognized on field, which is really exciting. And, and in addition to the recognition, obviously we'll be receiving a grant, which will help go towards their work in mental health. And so I think this is just the first step of many that we hope to do in partnership with the Ruderman Foundation around the idea of growing uh, and lessening the stigma around mental health and growing awareness for mental health as a, as a partnership. Well, first of all, I want to thank you because, I mean, it's been um, an honor to work with, with the Red Sox. And, you know, it was a privilege to meet with Sam Kennedy because I think he's a real leader in the field. And I actually, you know, gotten to know Billy Bean, who's an executive at MLB, who is the inclusion uh, officer under the commissioner. And we've had some real successes working with Billy. And he once made a statement to me saying, you know, if Sam Kennedy gets behind something, then the rest of MLB is going to pay attention. I think mental health touches every single family. So I think there will be a lot of engagement. Um, the videos, which is a little bit of a spoiler, and I've seen some of them with some of the players, I think will be hugely impactful. You know, as someone who goes to a lot of games and I hope the season will happen this year and, and we'll have a baseball season. But I just remember the no place for hate, speak up if you hear something about, you know, racial discrimination and um, those videos that would run in every game and how impactful that message is to an entire fan base. And I hope that it will expand beyond Boston to other, you know, ballparks across the country. And it's important. It's important to take, you know, this out of the stigma. I mean, we've worked with police departments and stigma, you know, has a role there, unfortunately, in our society, first mm -hmm. responders, and especially now in this crisis, suicide yeah. is a real issue. Um, more first responders die by suicide than in the line of duty. And it's time to bring this out of the shadows and really talk about it publicly. You know, the Red Sox Foundation does so many good things 
And maybe you want to just talk a moment about the partnership with Mass General and, and the Run for Home Base um, and, and tell us a little bit about what that's about and how that helps people. So the Home Base program, and, and really I think of them as an organization because they've grown so much beyond just the title of a program. Well, how that was started was back in after our championship in 2007. I hope I'm getting my years right. This is now you're testing my knowledge of Red Sox history. The team went down to uh, the White House, obviously, which is a norm uh, to meet the president. But while they're in D.C. area, they visited Walter Reed. Tom Warner, who was our chairman, after visiting Walter Reed and talking with the folks in leadership down there, recognized the need for more support for our veterans. And so he actually came up with the kind of idea of home base, which would be a partnership between MGH, Mass General Hospital, given they're one of the best hospitals in the world um, in leading um, research around kind of what home base does, and I'll get into that in a moment, but it would be a partnership between kind of the best doctors and research at MGH and the brand and brand power uh, and, and kind of amplifier and megaphone of the Boston Red Sox and leveraging those two assets together could really put some meaningful work behind the need of our veterans that provide so much freedom services, just our life here in the United States. And so that was kind of the impetus for the creation of Homebase. And so Homebase now, today, 10 years later, it was founded in, well, it's now 11 years, it was founded in 2009, is now its own uh, kind of self-sufficient organization that runs out of the Navy Yard in Charlestown that has a mission of curing the invisible wounds of war. And how they kind of, how we, they talk about that is everything from anxiety and depression to TBI to post-traumatic stress, any and everything uh, that you would kind of classify as these invisible wounds. Of course, many of our veterans come home with physical wounds that you can see, but it's the the ones that you can't see that are oftentimes the most dangerous. And so Homebase exists to provide the support and resources that our veterans need to be healthy. Because we talked about suicide, for some staggering statistic that's like 20 or 22 veterans a day commit suicide. And so we, we need to step up and do more in the way of services for our veterans to make sure that they have the support they needed once they leave the battlefield. And so Homebase sees about 3,000 veterans every single year at their facility, their center of excellence in Charlestown, completely free. And these services are open to veterans across the country. They fly them in and they have a, a two-week intensive course where the veteran and their family, and I find that very important to note, um, because they, they recognize that for the veteran to really be well and to make the most of their treatment, their family members, the individuals with whom they live and will there, thereby be with after they leave the services of home base, their family members also need services to know how to speak, to know how to support, to know what triggers the veteran. So the veteran and their family comes in for services uh, through this intensive uh, kind of course over two weeks for free. And it is provided by clinicians and research based out of MGH. That's where the partnership goes back to MGH. We at the Boston Red Sox continue to help brand and make aware to veterans the services of home base. We also run the largest fundraiser for home base every single year, and that's the quote, run to home base. The run to home base is a 9K, 5K, 
walk and run that is done at Fenway Park and raises about $3 million every single year for home base. And so we see upwards of 2,500 runners that come in from all across the country to run the race and walk the race at uh, Fenway Park. It's done the morning of a game, usually in July, mid-July. Uh, and fingers crossed that we actually can host this year's run to home base. And it, it starts bright and early in the morning. We start with the ceremony right inside Fenway Park. Runners then go out and run around the city of Boston and Cambridge. And they are able to come in through the backfield and run around the um, backstop, the, the outfield in Fenway Park. And then they cross home plate as their last step of the race. And they're greeted with by uh, the leadership here at the Red Sox and, and the Red Sox Foundation. And they get a medal. And, then there's a ceremony pregame. It happens on a game day. There's a ceremony pregame uh, with the runners and, and the, the specific cohort of veterans that we recognize every single year that we run the race. The cohort that we've recognized the last several years, last year was Families of the Fallen. The year prior were Vietnam vets. Uh, and this year, I believe we're focusing on African-American veterans. Um, and so we try to kind of find a subsect of veterans that we recognize every single year, a different cohort. And so it's just a beautiful day to bring awareness to the needs of our veterans in this country and to raise critical funds, which all go towards the services that are provided at home base um, every single year. And so we're, again, extremely hopeful that we can conduct this year's run to home base because we do not want to provide any less than what we've committed to home base for this year's fundraising. So I just wanted to thank you for your time. And, you know, this broadcast is called All Inclusive, which is all about including everyone, including people with disabilities. Maybe you can talk about from your own personal experience uh, with the Red Sox and, and also in general, the importance of including people with different abilities and how that has sort of changed the total atmosphere of the organization? Given that I fit into a typically excluded category, uh, being a female and being a person of color, uh, and being underrepresented in, in, in many walks of life right now, not least of which is my professional career at the Red Sox, I, as mentioned before, am extremely, extremely intentional of making sure that we can bring in the most diverse people into our workforce as possible. I truly believe that when you have as many different types of people, any type of category, you are going to be better for it. The broader you have in terms of your perspective, when you look at life, the broader perspective you have when it comes down to making decisions, the better decisions you're going to have. You know, I oftentimes say that I'm in a position of authority, in a position of power. The worst thing I could ever do is make a decision that is going to impact somebody whose voice I don't have represented around the table. And so I really try to, in every, in every decision I make around hiring in, in partnerships, is try to have as many types, different types of people recognized as possible. And I'll just give you a, another conversation that I had recently here. I also coach, this is just a sidebar and you can include this or choose not to include this, but I, I also coach Dorchester Youth Soccer. I coach my boys soccer team. And there has been conversations about inclusion. Uh, and my children's sidebar go to an inclusion school, which means that students with 
with uh, extreme disabilities are fully baked into the classroom, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so there are nonverbal students in my in my kids' classroom. Uh, there are students with a full one-on-one -on -one para in my students' classroom. And this idea of kindness and acceptance is at the core of, of my students' learning every single day, which I think is so critical for that learning group um, to have that kind of ethos and, and, and kind of um, just messaging day, day in and day out of difference is acceptable and difference is normal and kindness is uh, the expectation. So anyway, I don't even know how I got there, but I coached Dorchester Youth Soccer and there's been conversation around inclusion there, around whether it should or should not be an inclusion model, meaning accepting young people with disabilities. And I've had to have conversa tough conversations to say, heck yes, absolutely. We need to make sure we're including young people that have disabilities in these opportunities. Otherwise, they won't get them. And P.S., sometimes this is more impactful for the kids that don't have disabilities as it is for the young people with disabilities. And so I think there's oftentimes, unfortunately, a lens where we're looking at this through the microscope of this, the person that has the disability and not recognizing that this can be almost more impactful for those around them as it is for the person with. And so I, I just, that's also a lens that I often approach this work with is that too often we think of this in a selfish way when it's actually mutually beneficial. I really appreciate your time, especially during this very trying time that we're going through as a country and a world. So really, thanks for joining us today. And uh, we really look forward to, to working with you in the coming months. Well, thank you for your partnership. We are so excited about this year one and hope that there's future years beyond this and that we can continue to grow this not only within the Boston Red Sox, but as you said, MLB and with other teams. I think this could be a, a replicated model uh, throughout the league. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye. All Inclusive is a production of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Our key mission is the full inclusion of people with disabilities in all aspects of society. You can find All Inclusive on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. To view the show notes, transcripts, or to learn more, go to rudermanfoundation.org slash allinclusive. Have an idea for a podcast? Be sure to tweet at jruderman.com. 